Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Week's of classic film from 1998 film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight yes Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident self-assured style Lex Luthor in Superman what is it about Gene Hackman that uh... his performance it's off the charts but still in reality fiendishly gifted 1981 Sam Raimi Opus The Evil Dead oh yes fine choice Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have charade oh directed by Stanley Donnan it's a textbook screenplay it's just effortless and there's not a wrong note in this movie can't say enough great things about it we'll be back next Friday with an all new episode of the 430 movie wherever you listen to podcasts join us now for the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie Podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. If you think you felt a great disturbance in the force, you're not wrong. Ed Gross and me, Mark A. Altman, have a new oral history coming out this July from St. Martin's Press. It's Secrets of the Force, the complete, uncensored, unauthorized oral history of the Star Wars saga. So, Wherever you buy books, audio and video, pick it up today, pre-order, and you can learn the secrets of the Force. And don't miss our oral history of Star Trek in stores now. And of course, nobody does it better. The complete oral history of James Bond in digital, hardcover, paperback, and audio. That is all. Sundays on Electric Now. Tune in to the official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast with me, Yell Teagle, and my co-host, Felicia Michelle. Each week, we'll be breaking down another episode of Leverage Redemption. Plus, we've got exclusive interviews with the stars, as well as some games, and we'll even be showing off some amazing fan art. So after you watch Leverage Redemption on IMDb TV, you'll definitely want to join us here to catch all the Easter eggs and behind-the-scenes fun. The official Leverage Redemption After Show, a very distinctive podcast. Sundays on Electric Now. If you like listening to this podcast, you'll love watching us on Electric Now, the free video streaming app featuring video versions of all your favorite Electric Surge podcasts, along with full seasons of The Librarians, Leverage, the exclusive Leverage Redemption After Show, as well as Flash Gordon serials, hysterical comedy specials, and much more. Download it today from your favorite app store or watch us on Roku, Stir, DistroTV, Zumo, Sling, or Plex. Welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me, as always, is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. Uh, And we're excited to bring on writer, producer, Scott J. Schneid. How are you doing today, Scott? Good, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Great to be hanging with you. (laughs) um i can guarantee if you are a horror fan you've seen scott's best known work which is the christmas horror slasher classic silent night deadly night uh but we're also going to be talking about a movie that he is less proud of the finished (laughs) result and that is phantom of the mall uh and then talking about anything else uh after that and in between but why don't we just get right into things um 
tell us a little bit like what's what's your origin story how did you <laughs> get into the film business why did you get into the film i business? was born on a brilliant sunny day in brooklyn new york <laughs> <laughs> you know i'll keep that out no yeah i grew up um, in brooklyn new york my father never graduated from high school owned a candy store under a subway train Oh, wow. So, you know, egg creams, French fries, cheeseburgers. That That's was a great... Uh, we haven't heard that one before. A so. great child, beautiful child. And my dad was born in Coney Island, actually, you know, which was the beach area yeah. in Brooklyn with, you know, the Ferris wheel and it was called the Wonder Wheel and roller coasters and all that stuff. So my dad was born there. And um, I had no idea as a kid that I wanted to go into the entertainment business. I don't know. You know, back when I was a kid in the 1960s, um, movie i didn't know anybody in the film business i didn't know people directing <laughs> movies i didn't know people wrote movies I, I wasn't in my universe there were no dvd collector's editions with interviews and behind the scenes looks and grabs and explaining how they did the cgi shots you know <laughs> there was no cgi but so yeah i had no idea people did that so i grew up a little bit of an, of an athlete and um pretty good student and luck had it I was, a, I was a tackling Jew. <laughs> I played linebacker mm -hmm. in high school and I co-captained my high school football team. And um, I got into some good places that I would not have gotten into if not for football. I got into Harvard. I got into Columbia. I got into Rutgers and Lehigh. And uh, yeah, wasn't good enough to play Notre Dame or Ohio State, but <laughs> good enough to play like sort of one double A type football, you know. And um, yeah, so off I went to the Ivy League believe it or not, with a father who didn't graduate from high school and a mom was just a housewife who graduated from high school, but that was it. Four years at Harvard, I was an American history major. I was out playing football all four years. Excuse me, I'm a little hot up here. I was out playing football all four years and didn't start, but came really close. When I was at Harvard for the four years, we won two Ivy League titles. I played with seven guys that went in the NFL. Four years I was at Harvard. So it was very competitive. Again, it wasn't Notre Dame or Ohio State, but it was still very competitive. And I came super close. I was second team for almost half the season uh, on the Ivy League championship team. Played a few minutes against BU, a few minutes against Holy Cross. I came super. I also had injuries three of the four years I was out. You can't, you can't climb the football ladder <laughs> no matter what level. You know, you can't climb the football ladder and not get hurt. Yeah. You just, you just can't. So I had strained ligaments, you know, partially torn ligaments in my left knee. I wrecked my ankle. I had hamstring pulls. I had hip pointers. I had a concussion. You just can't play it. You know, it's just, it's just the way it is. But it also was a great, great thing for me. And I had a job offer out of Harvard with Procter & Gamble in sales management in the Boston area. And the thing about that was, was um, um I had accepted the job to start in the fall after my senior. And I love Boston and Cambridge. It's just a cool place. I loved mm -hmm. being there four years. It's just a, a wonderful, wonderful place to be. And Harvard was a great place to be. And um, I had accepted the job offer. I was the only senior at Harvard that Procter & Gamble offered one job to in sales management. I interviewed 160 seniors. I had seven interviews. This is to get a job, to put on a three-piece suit, <laughs> go to the supermarkets and like, Help stock the shelves with posh puffs and fluffo. You know, it was crazy. I mean, it was, you know, it was overseeing the marketing of Procter and Gamble products to like the 50 Ralph stores in the Boston area, or whatever. You know what I mean? The equivalent. Yeah. And it was a great job if you wanted to then maybe two, three years down the road go get an MBA. 
and like Harvard Business School or Stanford or Wharton or Columbia. So I, I got the job that I wanted, not knowing I was a creative guy yet. No idea. I mean, Zippo, I'm talking zilch, other than like loving rock music and going to the movies. And, you know, I didn't know I was a creative person. So it's been quite a, I hate to use this overused Hollywood word, the journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it has been one. The, I mean, for all of us, it's a journey of some sort or another. And so for me, it was like, okay, no, but something was, was inside me that said, don't take this job with Procter & Gamble. I was supposed to start like in a month. I, I, I called them up and I said, you know, I'm, I think I'm going to Los Angeles to try and get in the film business actually. But actually let me backtrack for a second. That's actually not completely right. In my spring of my senior year, I, I formed a little concert production company with two of my classmates. And we ended up after we graduated, we, we produced two Chet Baker, Dave Brubeck concerts. So jazz concerts, one in Englewood, New Jersey, across Manhattan, and the other one in Brandeis University. And, um, you know, you can't make a lot of money being a jazz concert promoter. Led <laughs> <laughs> Zeppelin at the time, maybe. David Bowie, maybe, but not, uh, not uh, jazz. So I found myself six months out of school, and what the hell was I going to do? I couldn't go sniveling back to Procter & Gamble. Believe me, they didn't want any part of me after that, I'm sure. And I said, what am I going to do? So I went back to my mom's place in Brooklyn. She let me have my old room back for a little while. And, uh, you know, this is the day before the internet. And I just sent like 130 letters to people in Hollywood, you know, and you had to go to the library and pull the big daily variety yeah. issues off the shelf and look up who the people worked at the studios or the networks and probably half of them were already gone. Uh, so I typed out 130 letters to people talking about my experiences in my year out of college. So I didn't put a resume and I did what's called a resume letter. You know, in the letter, you talk about your stuff. I talk about playing football in college and, I worked for Warner Brothers, had a press secretary in Boston. I worked for him for a semester. I worked for Lieutenant Governor's press secretary. I did all this extracurricular stuff that was all kind of leading in this direction. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All leading and sort of going to a showbiz career. But I, I wasn't completely aware of it yet. You know, it was kind of, so I came out, uh, I think 130 letters, I think uh, 120, 20, 100 and, 20 people didn't even respond. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think I got uh, like 10 people that said, hey, you know, you have a sort of interesting background. We don't really have a job for you, but if you come out here, because I said I'm going to make a trip to LA, we'll talk to you. Sure, give us a call. And based on that, I, my roommate from college was studying for his MCATs to go to medical school, living in Santa Monica. He was from Torrance originally. And he was working as a baggage handler at LAX <laughs> during, the, during the night and studying for his MCATs in the day. He said, you can sleep on my couch. I, I arrived at the couch in Santa Monica and I started to call up the seven people who told me that they would talk to me. And, um, and then um, there were a few Harvard people in the entertainment business in those days, not so many as now. There are many more Ivy League people out here now. Um, there weren't that many back then. So um, I had had about 10 people at Harvard who's listed their names in the Office of Career Services for alumni that are interested in careers in showbiz or Wall Street or advertising. Certain alums would put their name in and say, oh, I'd be happy to talk to Josh Miller or Steve, blah, 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 blah. you know what I'm saying? And you mm -hmm. could go to the office and look them up for whatever career you might be interested in and write them a letter or, or, or call, an office, call their office and say, hey, I'm an undergraduate, I'm interested in 
getting a job in, in you know, at a studio. I saw, I see you work there or work. Could you talk to me, please? You know, so that's how it all happened. And uh, six weeks later, I was, in, I got a job in the William Morris agency training program in the mailroom. That's where I started. Like many started other in the mailroom class. That's what I did. 22, 23 <laughs> started in the mailroom. I spent two years, two months, two minutes, two hours, two seconds. And I spent two years away. <laughs> so I was, I tell everybody, that's where I got my master's in showbiz. I got my MA in showbiz at William Morris, two years there. And I was David Schiff's assistant for a year. David is a big manager now. You know, Matt was a management entertainment. I forget his company. I went, I went to David's wedding and, you know, was pretty close to him for a year. Played softball on the William Morris showbiz team. <laughs> was a starting catcher. You know, they played fast pitch softball. I had to wear a mask and a chest protector. And I remember we used to, we played against Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner had a team. <laughs> okay, Michael, throw it in here, Michael, throw it in here, Michael. I'm looking up and there's Billy Crystal at the back. <laughs> and there's Rob Reiner at the plate, you know. So great stuff, you know. You can't make this stuff up. It was just great stuff. And Hollywood was an interesting place in the early 80s. And, um, and it, but one of my big jobs, excuse me, I'm, I'm uh, toweling off here because it's a warm up <laughs> of my bedroom. Well, I feel like Bruce Springsteen giving a concert. If you ever <laughs> know what I mean. He gives his head in a bowl of water and then shakes his hair out and the water goes everywhere. <laughs> but um, one of the things you learn at, you know, in an agent training program, besides obviously you meet a lot of people, you learn the basics of the bare bones of the business and how it works, is, you know, you kind of learn maybe what you don't want to do. And my one of my big jobs working for David Schiff was to read scripts all the time. He was a TV casting agent. So he cast movies of the week and pilots and some episodic shows he was responsible for. And so I was constantly reading scripts. And then, of course, as an agent at William Morris, even though he was in the TV department, people would always be giving him their feature scripts, friends that he knew. But what do you think? He read them? No, he'd throw it in my desk. <laughs> Read this, will you? Give me a synopsis. You know, like, you know, I, so I did coverage all the time. And um, at the end of those two years, I started to think, you know, because I was an American history major at Harvard. So I had to write a lot of papers and I had to do a lot of reading and research, researching, excuse me. I got good at going to the library and learning how to research. I said, I can write as well as this. And all these ideas started flooding into my head for, because in those days, you know, the networks, this is pre, pre-DVD, pre-streaming and pre-platforming. The networks made, you know, tons of television movies. I mean, every network would make 25 a year, I think. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like 75, three, $4 million movies getting made every year that would air initially on ABC, NBC, or CBS, go to syndication, you know, and if they were any good, sometimes they'd show up on VHS. In, in video stores or DVDs eventually when that came in. So I just got really excited and my brain got flooded with all these ideas for stories. So yeah, all these ideas were flooding, flooding, flooding. I optioned an eight page treatment I wrote to Richard Pryor's production company. I was attached <laughs> to co-produce it. I optioned. Uh, what was that? It was called, There Goes the Neighborhood. Uh, this is, Eddie Murphy stole my idea for coming to America. That was the premise of that movie? Yeah, it was about a prince from a mythical kingdom called Tuckwell, who ends up with mm. his valet, like uh, John Gilgood and Arthur, living in a housing project in Queens. No one knows he's the future heir to the throne of Tuckwell. And he's living with a black, they're living with an African-American family in a Queens housing project. 
and he's the future the future king of England, and he's the prince, and no one knows he's the prince. I I don't want to bore you with all this, but after well, this is a podcast about unmade movies. So Richard Richard Pryor could didn't have his shit together on a business level. I knew the guy that ran his company, George Jackson. We played football together at Harvard, so I knew him, and and he he loved it, and he gave it to Richard in the option for five thousand bucks. It was a ten page treatment. Catch me is this is nineteen eighty four three or something like that. I was just starting to write. I was starting to write treatments and outlines. They had all these little ideas. Next thing you know, I had a project called False Start that Larry Schiller, who was a, was a journalist and became a producer. I attached him as the producer and uh, that didn't happen. They took it to the networks. They didn't, they didn't bite. And, and then when Richard Pryor couldn't get There Goes the Neighborhood made, Steve Martin's company optioned it for me as a TV series. Oh, wow. And I was attached to co-produce it. They paid me $4,000. I made $9,000 on that 10-page treatment in like mid-80s dollars. You yeah, know? that's pretty good for the mid-80s. Yeah, and I'd never written a script before. And I said, you know what? Maybe I should start writing scripts. <laughs> you know, I'm coming up with all these treatments. People are responding to my writing and the ideas. So that's, there's a million stories out there, huh, Josh, on the streets, you know? Yeah. <laughs> a million fucking stories out there on the streets that people don't even know the half of it, right? Yeah, so I left William Morris after two years. But while I was at the tail end of William Morris, because I, I was an alumni career advisor to some Harvard students, because some of the Harvard people were really nice to me when I was out here. And I didn't know anybody. So any, any lifeline that was thrown to me by anybody was most welcome. And um, so I, I started at 25 when I was getting ready to leave William Morris. I was, uh, became an alumni career advisor. Some of the young people that were still in college or just were graduating. And I got a script. I got a call first from a guy named Paul Kamey, C-A-I-M-I, who was a senior, I believe, or was, he was going to go to law school, I think. I can't remember now. But he called me up. And he said, hey, Scott. And it turns out I went to Lawrenceville. I told you I did that one PG year at Lawrenceville. Mm-hmm. Paul Kamey's brother was in my class at Lawrenceville. And he was an attorney in downtown LA, not in the entertainment business. So his name was Will- William Kamey. And he put his younger brother who had written a horror script in touch with me at William Morris because he also knew that I, the, the older brother who was the lawyer, knew from people at Lawrenceville that I was working in the entertainment business. And his brother, just younger brother, just written a script called He Sees You When You're Sleeping. So Paul came, he calls me up and he says, I've written this script. And he said, it's a sort of, it's a slasher horror movie and the uniqueness of it's set at Christmas. I said, well, that's interesting. And I'm already half out the door at William Morris. I made it, mm-hmm. I don't want to be an agent. Not because of Paul Kamey's phone call, it's because I decided I didn't want to be an agent. I wanted to try my hand. I thought at writing, but I still wasn't 100% sure. I just didn't think I wanted to be an agent. And um, so Paul sent me the script and I read it. And it was like a 75 page script written for a, like a night class at Harvard. I don't even know. Because there were no screenwriting classes back, back in the day when I was at Harvard. There was no film department. I think, of course, only Harvard would be arrogant enough to call their film department environmental and vi- environmental and visual studies. <laughs> That's what it was called. That's what it was called. Seriously. <laughs> so Paul sent me the script. I read it. It was a 72 page thing. It was kind of amateurish. And it was very much in the Halloween Friday the 13th template. You get to know a, a girl in the town, small town who's like 16, 17, like Jamie Lee Curtis and all her friends. 
And some guy in a Santa suit is just knocking them off one by one. And you don't know anything about him. He's sort of faceless. You follow the kids and not the, the, the killer, you know? Mm-hmm. So I, I gave the script to a friend of mine, again, Dennis Whitehead, who was not an agent training at William Morris, but he was a development guy, young guy. And I said, Dennis, read this script. I don't, I don't like the script. But this one sentence idea of some uh, Santa killing on Christmas Eve is kind of cool. And this was 1982. So we're talking not that long after Halloween, not that long after Friday the 13th. Nightmare on Elm Street had not been released yet. Didn't come out till the same weekend Silent Night, Deadly Night came out. First <laughs> I night didn't realize Elm- that was the same weekend. It opened the same, and, and, and Silent Night, Deadly Night beat it, doubled its intake. But Silent Night, Deadly Night was playing on 398 screens. And uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one was playing on 160 some odd screens. So Nightmare, so, so SNDN did better at the box office, but it was playing on, on double the screens. So I said to Dennis, but there's something here if we can develop a whole new take on it. And, and I, I had, didn't even know that there had been a couple of indie Santa killer movies like in the early, like To All a Good Night, I think was made prior to mm-hmm. Christmas Evil. Yeah. 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 And there was an episode of Tales from the Dark Side with Joan Collins, where there was some wacko Santa character in her house or something. Mm-hmm. I had seen mm-hmm. because there was no footprint on any of those movies. Mm-hmm. They were not made by a major studio with a big P&A camp. You know, a lot of prints, a lot of advertising money, a lot of TV spots, nothing. So I didn't know any of those. So I thought, hey, I'm, I'm being original here. I'm going <laughs> to beat everybody to this. And in essence, I kind of sort of did, except for the horror crazies out there who knew everything that was going on in the independent <laughs> world, right? I, I didn't know, you know, I just didn't know. So Dennis and I managed, and again, I didn't come from any money, um, even though I did produce Dave Brubeck, Chet Baker, that, I'm not going to backtrack to that now where the money came from that but it wasn't from my family i'll tell you that and um so we read dennis and i raised thirty-seven thousand dollars from two different individuals one was an oil guy in newport beach dennis's brother used to race formula one race cars his agent icm brother (laughs) raced formula one race and he had an investor that invested in his race car career um and he put up he got him to put up 27.5 and one of Dennis and my friends from, from who was in the training program, William Morris and me, he became a silent partner and, he, and his family put up 10 grand. He came from a pretty well-to-do family. So that's how we raised the 37,000. But before we raised the 37, Dennis and I each put up 250 bucks out of our own pocket. Dennis knew Michael Hickey, was a young screenwriter at ICM, starting his screenwriting career. And Dennis liked a couple of scripts of his, of Michael's that he had read, some spec movie scripts. And Dennis said, we should hire Michael Hickey to do a new take on a, a Santa killer movie. Um, and we just basically tossed Paul Kamey's script out, except we made a deal with him because I wanted to be fair. I said, Paul, I'm going to be honest with you. We, you know, thank you for sending it to me. And because of your sending it to me, I want to pursue a killer Santa movie. By the way, not knowing there had been these other ones made, I probably didn't. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I said, so we've got an option script where you give us a six-month free option, and if and if we get it made, you'll get WGA minimum, even though he wasn't in the WGA, which for us for a, based on a story idea by, not based on a story by, and and that and he had an agent. He was a young guy, a New York agent, because he was an actor too. 
He ended up going to law school, I think, a few years later. He's a lawyer. I think he lives in Ohio now. But so he had an agent in New York. And we negotiated the deal with the agent and um, paid him 500 bucks out of our pocket, 250 Put Michael Hickey to work. Michael worked on a number of drafts of the, the, the treatment. It was a 30 to 32 day treatment, just called Santa Claus at first. <laughs> no, not claws like that, but yeah. just Santa Claus. <laughs> L-A-U-S-C, I think it's about right. I don't know. But um, and the treatment got was really good. And it was it was absolutely the foundation of the screenplay that you see in the movie Simon. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael, so based on that 32-page treatment, we raised the $37,000. Michael was at ICM. Pat Falstich, who passed away too young, uh, was his agent. And we made do, we paid Michael like 16,000 WGA. It wasn't a WGA deal, but we paid him WGA rates. So we paid him 16,000 in 1982 to do a draft and a polish. And we, I didn't write a word of the script, but I mightily contributed to the story stuff. He did draft after draft and um, would turn in and we would sit and have meetings and talk about things, this and that, you know how it goes. We, we, it wasn't like he just gave us a script and that's what we ended up mm-hmm. with. a whole bunch of drafts. And it was, the process was probably like over a year between the treatment and the drafts. And when the drafts were finished, it was really good. And we came up with the title Slay Ride, S-L-A-Y-R-I-D-E, <laughs> which was the working title, which I love, which was the working title for Silent, which became Silent I Done It. And because Dennis's brother was an agent at ICM, we had some access. And the script was really good for what it was. It got great coverage at Universal. I have the original coverage at Universal before the movie was ever sold. Coverage was terrific. Um, and um, we, uh, we started to go out and look for a director because we didn't have money. I didn't have money. <laughs> I just didn't have money. Mm-hmm. My brother was an agent, but he wasn't going to finance the movie. And because we had some connections at ICM through Dennis and his brother, they got it to... Albert Magnoli was coming out of SC Film School, directed Purple Rain. He hadn't directed Purple Rain yet. We, we, we saw his MFA thesis film and we loved it. And he lo- Albert Magnoli loved Silent Night Deli, he wanted to direct it. And then wow. Ken Quapis was coming out of, uh, I think it was UCLA or I think it might have been UCLA or USC. We wanted like a young director coming out with a visual sensibility because the script was really good. We said, just shoot the fucking script. No. <laughs> you know, bring some visual flair to it and suspense cast well enough, you know, for what it is. It wasn't Citizen Kane for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, you know we, we knew it, we, you know, but what was cool. So Ken Quapis, Ken Quapis, who ended up direct, you know, he directed, ended up having a big career and, and he directed multiple episodes of Arrested Development, The Office, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, A Walk in the Woods with Robert Redford and Nick Nolte, you know, movie after movie. He wanted to direct. He was like 25 years old. Magnolia was, Albert Magnolia was 25, 26. And then Stuart Mark Golan, remember him, Angel from the Rockford Files? Yeah. He was Rockford's sidekick. Yeah, well, he had just he had just directed a movie for CBS, or HBO, I think, called The Glitter Dome. He was primarily- I remember that title. Yeah, yeah. based on a Joseph Wambach cop novel. And Stuart loved Slay Ride. He wanted to direct it. Mm-hmm. So we were trying to get a director attached and then figure maybe through that way we can get some money. You know, if we've got some, someone that, uh, you know, a company out there said, yeah, we love this young director. We love Stuart Margolin. Or, you know, maybe the director had contacts that could expand our universe of contacts for financing, you know? 
And then everything went to shit. No, <laughs> everything <laughs> went to shit, really. But, but in part, it went to shit because Dennis knew Ira Barmack. Now, Ira had an office down the hall from his brother Fred at ICM because Ira was an agent. Now, Ira Barmack, I didn't know him from Hill of Beans, but Dennis got to know him just from going up to ICM to see his brother. He would see Ira and, and he'd go to his office and they became friendly a little bit. So Dennis gave Ira Barmack the script while these other directors had just read it. you know, And Ira Barmack reads it and says, man, I really like this. This is really good. Now, Ira Barmack had already left ICM at that time. Ira Barmack started out life as a medical doctor, a Cornell graduate who became an MD. And then the minute his, and I, I'm Jewish and was bar mitzvah, so I can say this. The minute his Jewish mom died, he quit being a doctor. <laughs> that's, that's a true story. Mm. That is an honestly true, honest true story. And he did what he always dreamed because he was an actor as a kid. He became an agent. He got into the business end of the business. He became an agent. And he was actually the president of Filmways Television at one point, Ira Barmack. And so Ira read the script. He was, he was producing now, I guess. Dennis had met him originally at ICM and now Ira quit the agency business and was producing. And he said to Dennis, I love this script. I have a three picture deal at TriStar because Ira knew Gary Hendler, who was the president of the new studio in town, TriStar, at the time, which was owned by HBO, CBS and Coca-Cola, all big corporations. And um, Ira had a Danny Kay script that the comedian Danny Kay was attached to. <laughs> And he had Silent Night, he had Slay Ride. So he submitted both those projects to TriStar. And they came back and said, Wait, Slay Danny Ride. Kay was still making movies in the early 84, 80s? 83, yeah. Huh, and, huh. I'm not sure when he died, I don't know. <laughs> but TriStar came back and said, we, we want to do Slay Ride. We want to make it. This is going to be our, this is going to be our teen slasher franchise. Universal has Halloween. Paramount has Friday the 13th. We're going to have Slay Ride. Thought, they thought it was a good idea at the time. <laughs> Little did they know, the storm was uh, forming on the horizon. Um, and Barmack was really sweet and nice to us. He had a big house up in the hills, in Beverly Hills. We went up and he said, you guys can come. I want you guys to come on the set. And, you know, you're young producers. I'll teach you. Because he'd be the president of Film Race Television, like I said. So he had overseen production. And I didn't know anything about it, you know. Um, so here I am, 27 years old. <laughs> I, I, I was like two and a half years out of William Morris, you know? Next thing I knew, Barmack was great to us during the whole meeting him and wooing us. You'll come to the production location. I'll teach you. Next thing I know, we start negotiating because his company wanted to then, of course, acquire the rights because Dennis Whitehead and I own the rights. And um, next thing I know, he doesn't return our phone calls. He's not talking to us anymore. His lawyer, Mar Mike Meyer, Marvin Meyer, Rosenfeld, Meyer, and Sussman at the time, big Beverly Hills firm. And we had a young associate, Craig Jacobson, who's now a big entertainment attorney. Uh, Hanson Teller, Jacobson, whatever, Ryan Seacrest's attorney. He was an <laughs> associate at Pollock, Bloom, and Deckham at the time. I knew him from the training program at William Morris. I said, Craig, uh, Scott Schneider. I said, I got this deal. You want to make the deal for us? He said, sure, great. And Ira Barmack said, sure, you can executive, his lawyer said, no, Schneid Whitehead can executive produce. They can't produce it. Uh, he, they originally offered a CO producers. I said, fuck that, no way. Mm -hmm. No, then he said, you can executive produce it then. And then we said, okay, 
all sequel rights and remake rights are frozen or retained by Scotch Knight and Dennis Whitehead. No, that's not going to happen, he said. Okay, Scotch Knight and Dennis Whitehead get to executive produce all future sequels and remakes. No, that's not going to happen. I mean, Ira Barmax returning none of Dennis's calls. and not, uh, he, he didn't like me. He, he decided, you know, I was probably too aggressive and ambitious a young guy. He didn't like me around. And because um, Dennis is much mellower than I am, I think, in a lot of ways. But um, so, yeah, he, he wouldn't talk to Dennis and he disappeared on us and he let his lawyer handle everything. But my lawyer said, well, what are you going to give Scotch Knight and Dennis Whitehead for future sequels and remakes? Uh, uh, six net points. So I looked at Dennis. I said, Dennis, you're working in Bullock's department store. I'm working as a bartender in a Chinese restaurant. At night. <laughs> so I was writing scripts from 10 to 4 with Tony Michaelman, my writing partner, going to work at the Chinese restaurant at 5 o'clock at night till 10.30 every night to bartend. And on the weekends after I got off at the Chinese restaurant, I went to the disco in Westwood and bartended from 11 to 2 in the morning. This is what I had to do. I had wow. no choice. I had no choice. My, my dad died. And there was no money in my family and no one was sending me checks. Say, son, we love you. Here's a thousand a month. <laughs> it wasn't my reality. I wish it had been. It would have been a lot easier, believe me. And um, so next thing we know, we make the deal because we had no choice. I mean, we could have not made the deal and gone to Stuart Margolin or Ken Klopas or Albert Magnoli, but what are the chances? This guy had a deal at TriStar to make a movie. TriStar said, we are ready to fund this movie. Sew up the rights, sew up the IP, Ira, the intellectual property rights of the script so we can make the movie. So we signed over, Dennis and I, all of our rights to Ira Marmack for a $40,000 executive producer fee in 1984, six net points, and uh, uh, credit in the main titles on a separate card and all paid ads. And those <laughs> days, there were only three or four producers on a movie. So today, there's 20, there's 50. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the on that poster where it says Ira Barmack produced by executive producer Scotch Knight, Dennis White, that was it on the poster. It was just three producers, Ira Barmack and Dennis and I, that's it. No other producer. So, and um, Barmack went and did things that I never would have done. He went, he went and shot the movie in Utah because it was a right to work state. And he knew Ch Charles Sellier, who was a Mormon producer in Utah, who had produced Grizzly Adams, the TV series, I think for NBC, and had, had crews Crews at the ready in Utah because he had he had directed or produced a bunch of documentaries like In Search of Noah's Ark, the UFO conspiracy, you know, all this crazy <laughs> stuff. You know, and he had all these crews and Barmack wanted to make a movie on the cheap. It was shot for a million sixty-five thousand dollars in thirty. They shot thirty-two days, if you can believe it, is my understanding. For a million sixty-five in nineteen eighty-four, a lot of night shooting. We never went to location. We had no location deal for round trip airfare or anything. Barmack clearly didn't return any of Dennis's phone calls, didn't want us anywhere near the set. And um, yeah, so I, you know, next thing I know, the movie's shot and they're screening it at TriStar. We don't get invited to the <laughs> Oh my God. You can believe that. I Barmack, can't believe <laughs> Barmack was so insecure and fucked up. And Barmack disappeared and the movie comes out. Well, the great thing was, TriStar did actually FedEx 10 posters to Dennis Whitehead to my house for Dennis and I. I had no idea what the posters looked like. I'm unfurling the thing, right? 
I'm 27 years old, right? I'm getting a studio movie. It's the greatest thing on the planet. I just left William Morris two years ago. And, and I'm unfurling this poster and I'm looking at, you made it through Halloween, now try and survive Christmas. He knows, I like yelped. It was the great, it was just- That's a great poster it's one of the, yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah, it truly is one of the great, but I did Burke Klieger, K-L-E-E-G-E-R, designed it. Truly, and I have talked to him in the intervening years, truly one of the great posters. And um, I watched the, the media circus from afar, you know, like everybody else. I got called to be on the Phil Donahue show. We did a whole hour on the movie, if you can believe that. But I guess uh, just to say, maybe for uh, younger listeners who don't know the story, it was it sounds funny now, but it was it was so controversial at the time that you guys had the gall to make a killer Santa movie. Like I remember Ebert was really up in arms about it. You know, what's funny is that I was a huge horror fan. I was reading Fangoria. I knew every horror movie that was coming out. I wasn't really aware of this movie until I saw it like on Entertainment Tonight or somewhere where there was complaints that a killer Santa Claus movie was coming out. That's how I heard of it. And then I was immediately like, I got to see this. I only knew of it from the controversy and I was excited to see it from that. Where did you live, Steve, in 1984, November? I lived in Long Island. Oh, yeah, because it was released by TriStar on 398 screens in the East Coast and the Midwest, Chicago, Milwaukee. They were planning on going wide two weeks later. Wide in those days meant about 1,200 screens. Now it's like 4,000, right? You know, some insane mm. amount of screens. So it was 1,200. So they were going to go, excuse me, they were going to go to the West Coast and, and everywhere else in the country, South. And uh, because parents started picketing. I mean, they showed ads for the movie in Milwaukee and Chicago in the Midwest during the Green Bay Packers football game. Where all, all the families around the TV, really little <laughs> you know, go and you see that you see gloved hands, Santa's gloved hands, picking axe off the wall of the toy store, right? And the good, yeah. Oh my God, yeah, dude. I remember it was like a mom talking about she just bought her daughter or son a, a Santa stuffed animal, uh, stuffed, mm. you know, stuffed Santa, and it he wouldn't touch it anymore because he's terrified. gonna kill me. Gonna yeah, and and I'll never forget watching that. I'm like, I got to see this. You know, <laughs> I was like, I got to see this. I, I mean, I, it's all coming back to me. Um, so that's so Silent Night, Dead Night came out. We watched we watched from the sidelines. I refused to go on the Phil Donahue show. Because uh, <laughs> I knew the, there was a group that sprouted up in Milwaukee called Mothers Against Movie Madness. And they were going to be on the show also. You know, point, counterpoint, right? I knew but, that I was going to get roasted you know? you, you, yeah. were, you would have got destroyed i would have gotten creamed yeah by the I, audience by the host like you would have been destroyed oh, yeah so the funny thing is i was in new york when it opened i saw it in brooklyn in manhattan and i saw it in boston so i was in boston with my ex-girlfriend at the time and we were in the theater and they're in a in an urban part of boston and there are a lot of african-american folks in the in the theater too sold out just sold out and the scene where Billy uh, bends down and gives the little girl the bloody box cutter. And he says, have you been good all year? She goes, <laughs> yes, Santa. He goes, are you sure? He goes, yes. <laughs> you know, the audience was going crazy. And a woman behind me jumps up and says, if Santa kills that little girl, honey, I am leaving. <laughs> she was like, you know, the people were just going crazy. And 
excuse me, there was um, there was a big billboards. Coca-Cola used to run the famous Santa ads at Christmas time. This, you know, pink cheek Santa holding all the, the bottles of Coke. And um, so in Manhattan, when I saw it, Santa Delia in Manhattan, there's the billboard with Santa with Coca-Cola and around the corner is TriStar's billboard for Silent Night, Deadly Night. And Coca-Cola said, we want this movie out of theaters. And my understanding is that's what happened, is that the corporate people, you know, just try, the TriStar buckled into the pressure from Coke and maybe HBO, and I'm not sure about CBS, but, and that's what happened. And they pulled it from there after only 10 days, but a lot of theater owners wouldn't return the prints. So it grossed officially, it grossed like, uh, I don't know, 2.5 million and only 400 screens in 10 days. I heard it did about four to five million and was on its way to 15, 20 on a $1 million negative. In the, in the, in the days of VHS, come on. Yeah. You know what that would have done if it had gone wide? Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and oh my God. So maybe our 6% of net profits actually would have, you know, <laughs> maybe they might not have been able to hide those six points. You know what I mean? Because if it because it was only made for a million sixty-five. Yeah. Hey, my dog just is at my feet here. Sorry. Hey, buddy. Um, so um, that's what happened, and um, quite a quite a quite a lose your filmic virginity story. <laughs> yeah, no right? kidding. No, we, we all have one of those, or many of us have those. Mm-hmm. Um, but mine was kind of like bend over, you know, get ready. You're really going to lose your filmic virginity here. But hey, what an experience, you know? I, I'm a small footnote in film history, right? I'm a little smudge in film history, and it's okay. Um, Charles Sellier. There's I, fans of that movie, and it's got oh, such a unique, great structure, you know, as well. So, so there is a big, in the horror community, a really big footprint, because it's, it's a phenomenal movie. By the way, my LLC owns the film now. So I own the film with Dennis Whitehead. Well, good for I, you. I spent seven years. That's great. Seven years getting the rights back to the movie. So the reboot that was just announced by Orwo Studios with, I just did Jeepers Creepers 3 and doing Jeepers Creepers Reborn. So we're partners now with Orwo on the reboot. And we're trying to get a distribution deal. And I can't tell you who wants to direct it and who wants to do it. Well, I'm not going to write the reboot. No it's a relief. <laughs> it's a happy ending. I was kind of sad. I hope so. <laughs> so now I'm happy, at least. Yes, you know. oh yes. So all that merch out in the world that you see on Silent Night, Doesn't I have Fright Rags, Gutter Garbs, I made all the deals. Hey. The NECA doll. Yeah. The Shout Factory deal. The um, the uh, Burning Witches record soundtrack deal. The Death Wall soundtrack deal. The publishing 1984. I made every one of those deals. So I, I've been a sales guy. I got to know the gentleman that ended up owning the movie really well. And I worked for him part-time for five, six years and made all those deals. And then have now made a whole bunch of them on my own. And he passed away and his wife inherited it. And she quit claiming the film to me, which was incredible. incredible. I I formed an LLC and now it's owned by the LLC. And we set up the reboot. We were going to do the reboot with Cinestate. Well, actually, I take it back. I thought we were going to do the reboot with Blumhouse. We met with Jason for an hour and Ryan Turek and Cooper, and they, they were waiting to see how Black Christmas did. Actually, Universal was waiting to see how Black Christmas did, more than them, I think. But, okay, so when it bombed, Universal didn't want to sign that. 
So we just, Dallas, Dallas on at Sinister had been chasing after me for a long time, for months. And he said, did the, did, did the bad guys win? Because he thought Jason snapped yeah. up. Did Blumhouse win, you know? Because he had, he just bought Fangoria, you know? Mm-hmm. And he was making horror movies. So I said to Dennis White, I said, you know what? I like Dallas. I negotiated, so we ended up negotiating the deal with Dallas. And with, unfortunately, Adam Donahue. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe fortunately, as the case may be, because mm. Dallas's investors then pulled out of him doing horror films, as you probably know. Mm-hmm. Dallas, we love you, but we don't want you making horror movies. Anymore. We'll, still, we'll still fund your films, but not horror. So he sold Fangoria. He sold Birth Movies Death, I guess. He bought that too. And uh, he pulled out of Silent Identity. Well, he probably paid us for an 18-month option. But he says, so good, guys. Find somebody. Either give me my money back or find somebody to reimburse me. So I'm not giving you fucking money back. Find somebody to reimburse you. No, because anytime you write a check and it clears, I'm not giving it back. So we found somebody and that somebody was Orwell. And uh, Orwell, again, it just made Jeepers Creepers 3. They got the IP on that. And they were fans of Silent Night, Deadly Night. And they own studios, Orwell owned studios outside of Baton Rouge in Jackson, Mississippi. They're partnered with Black Hanger in the UK where some of the Star Wars movies have shot. and they own a studio in Spain. And I think they're just closing one deal in the Mauritius. They made a movie with, um, they made a movie with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ethan Hawke on Chet Baker. It was like a $6 million. Yeah, it was good. When you were talking yeah. about Chet Baker earlier, I was like, oh, yeah. Ethan yeah, Hawke's yeah, yeah. Isn't that funny, actually? Yeah. <laughs> so we are getting, hopefully going to develop a script. We haven't started development yet. We have a big horror writer who wants to do it. I, can't, I just can't say the name yet. And a, and a, a very visually talented guy directed a couple of big horror movies in the early 2000s, late 90s. And it's not going to give it away. You guys all know everybody. You probably know who it is already. But I, I, can't, I can't say it for the podcast, right? Because I'm just, I'm legally bound. No, I'm yeah. not. <laughs> it's, all, it's, it's all good. Yeah. It's, just, it's just happy there's, there's a good ending to it, man. Yeah, so great. let's hope it's a yeah. good ending. It was also great because I then went on to start writing scripts because of my experience working with Michael Hickey. And I got so excited. Again, I partnered with a guy named Tony Michaelman because Dennis Whitehead was not a writer. My silent identity was not really a writer. So I partnered with a guy named Tony Michaelman from the training program at William Morris. After writing a couple of spec scripts together, I think we did our Magnum PI and two Remington Steels and a Cheers. We decided to write our first feature script. And um, I looked around in shopping malls and I said, you know, <laughs> fuck, it's 1984. People are hanging out in malls. Teenagers are living in malls. There's no Xbox. There's no, you know, home video games. They got going to the arcades and all the malls and playing video games. And all the young women are there that they're interested in. And, and it's the food courts are there and fast food. And I said, let's figure out a, a, a horror movie set in a mall. And then it just hit me. Phantom of the Mall. I remember Phantom of the Opera. Not that I, I you know, I... I wasn't like some Phantom of the Opera fanatic. I mean, he had seen it once, you know, on television. Mm-hmm. And this was before the Andrew Lloyd Webber play, the, right? Yeah. Thank you, son. <laughs> before the Andrew Lloyd Webber mania, mania hit in London and on Broadway, which was like 1986, 88, something like that. And I actually had even a third, another writing partner named Frederick Ulrich. So, um, Prior to Tony Michael and Fred and I just dabbled. We wrote two scripts together. And, what, and, and Silent Night, Dead and I came out in 84. He said, we started talking. And that's when Phantom of the Mall popped up. So Fred and I did a 30-page treatment called The Mall. 
Fred was an investment banker, went to Harvard, <laughs> Harvard Business School I met through the Harvard Connections, and uh, he made a ton of money. And he was like I don't know, 13 years older than I was. But he loved literature, he loved stories, he loved movies, and he was dabbling. So we dabbled, so I dabbled with him and we did the treatment of the mall. And so it was a 30 page treatment we wrote together. And Fred was a little stiff in his writing, but, but um, and then Fred ended up stopping writing. And I said, Fred, I really want to take this treatment of the mall over to my partnership with Tony Michael. And we would like to turn it into a feature script. So I made a deal with Fred that he would get a shared story credit if we ever got it made and whatever the WGA money was. And then, uh, so Tony Michael and I wrote a sp our first spec feature script, Phantom of the Mall. Not Phantom of the Mall, fucking Eric's Revenge. Not <laughs> Eric's Revenge. There was no damn Eric anywhere to be found. His name was Carl in my script. Not Eric. This was not a copycat of Phantom of the Opera. It was just, it happened to be, a f okay, yes, it was a phantom story set in a mall with a sewer system under the mall. They built the mall over the sewer system. But, okay, we'll talk a little bit more about it. But so, so Fred and I made a deal. Tony and I, Michael and I wrote, spent four months, whatever, writing the spec script. And I had a dear friend named Tony Caden, another Tony, but different last name, who had just written Out of Bounds for Columbia and Freeze Entertainment. So um, Out of Bounds was with Anthony Michael Hall. And um, he had written the script and Freeze got it set up. Freeze paid Tony in, in a development deal for their company's own money, probably paid him 50 grand or whatever. And then they turned around and sold it to Columbia for $400,000 and Columbia financed it for 11 million. And Tony Caden was a screenwriter. And Freeze had also just gotten a lot of cash to make lower budgeted movies. As you guys I'm sure well know, if you don't remember, I'm sure you know this, that because of v the booming VHS business followed by the booming multi-billion dollar DVD business, Hollywood was awash in video money and DVD money. So companies like Freeze Entertainment that were the number one supplier of television movies to the networks, Chuck Freeze produced like 140 television movies over his career. All of a sudden, they found themselves with $25 million from Credit Lee and A to make <laughs> low-budget films. And that's what happened. And Dino De Laurentiis, who made Pumpkinhead with Stan Winston, that's how DEG was formed. They got a ton of money. You know, that's how MCEG was formed, Vestron. Vestron was another company that made a lot of independent movies. Vitrimar, T-R-I-M-A-R-K. There were all these. So what was so cool about that period in Hollywood First of all, there was so much creativity. It wasn't done by committee. It wasn't done by analytics. Well, I'll tell you about Phantom Mall, how analytics fucked the title up. But <laughs> it, it, so, but it was done, you know, it was, yeah, of course there were development executives and story readers that put their two cents in, but the tail wasn't wagging the dog so much as it is now. The tail is truly wagging the dog. The marketing people tell the creative people what to do, you know, and, and all the analytics and all the, you know, so in those days, it wasn't like that as much. And there were so many companies making smaller movies. Of course, the studios are making their 10 to 30, 40 million dollar films. Now they're 150, 250 million. But they were making those pictures. Of course they were. But there were all these companies making 500,000 to 5 million dollar movies. And they had distribution arms so they could play the movies in theaters. 
because they knew there was this gigantic monster after the theaters called VHS and DVD after VHS, right, came in. So their downsides were covered, basically, (laughs) pretty much. But so there was a lot of creativity because it wasn't about buying an IP because you knew at Warner Brothers your movie was going to be 300 million. And if there wasn't a built-in audience already for that 150, 200 million dollar movie, you forget it. There's no way you're going to make some spec script written by some loser screenwriter in Starbucks who's telling some personal story that he or she is passionate about and loves. Forget that. We're not, we're not making that. <laughs> we're going to make only movies based on YA novels, video games, sequels, prequels. We have to feel it's guaranteed because we're, we're now marketing to a worldwide audience and, and on and on and on. But that didn't exist in the 80s and in the 90s really so much. By the way, there was a lot of shit that got made, if I didn't say that before. In the 80s. <laughs> there was a lot of shit that got made. Okay, New World Pictures made 30 movies a year, 27 movies a year. But still, it was, so you could be a young writer. And there were development deals all over the place at the studios. The studios, like, bought option hundreds of spec scripts a year. Every Friday, William Morris, ICM, CA would go out with the weekend read with the new specs from their clients, sometimes with producers attached, sometimes not. And you could be a young writer, get a development deal. Like I got a development deal at Orion Pictures on a spec murder mystery action thriller. You know, Tom Bear and John Jacobs. John Jacobs made Ted. Remember the movie Ted with mm-hmm. Bear? Yeah, they made a whole bunch of it. So we had a development deal. You know, we were young writers in 1991. We got paid 35,000 against 300,000. You can make money and, and, and you know, practice your craft. Hopefully, maybe one would actually get made. Well, let's take a step back because I want to talk about your actual script for Phantom of the Mall, your yeah. version, not not Eric's Revenge, what got made. But before that, I mean, I'm curious because um, you were talking a bit about how you're like, well, kids are going to the malls. Like, let's just yeah. think about a mall. Did you and Tony go hang out at malls yes. and kind of yes, observe the teens? So, so we wrote it, Tony Mike's again. Phantom Mall started as a treatment, a 30-page treatment written by Fred Ulrich and I. And then Fred Ulrich got out of writing scripts. He didn't write much anymore. So I ported that treatment over to the Schneid-Michael partnership. We wrote a spec script. So before we wrote the spec script for Phantom Mall, we did. We went to a whole bunch of malls. We got permission to go look, went in the back corridors, the mechanical rooms up on the roof. Because my, 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 my office with my partner, Tony Michaelman, was in Sherman Oaks and the gallery was oh, right it was there. the gallery. Well, they ended up shooting the God dang thing. It was a very cool mall. It was like a, ahead of its time visually. It but they were like, taking you down like to the boiler room. Yeah, we went and down all the... to the mechanical room. And yeah, it was great. Cause I said to, we can't just have the whole freaking movie in the light of the open mall. Now, mm-hmm. now, and malls always seem to me, they seem like giant, sp- back in the days when they weren't outdoor malls, like now they're all indoor malls. They were these giant structural things, you know? They seemed like spaceships. So when we went and we started looking at all the back areas, the ventilation chests, I said, fuck, Tony, this is the goddamn Nostromo out of Alien. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I said. This mall is the Nostromo. Let's use the ventilation shafts for the Phantom to get around. Let's make it that they built the mall over the old sewer in the neighborhood there where they bought all the houses, plowed them all under, and dug a gigantic hole, which is, by the way, is the opening of my script, The Phantom of the Mall. Yeah, much better opening. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. with the rat the street and the bulldozer comes and the rat runs away. And you pull back and you see this giant bulldozer with a big const- night with a, in a neighborhood where all the houses are dark. Nobody lives in them anymore. And the bulldozer pulls into a parking lot. And you, they tilt up and it says future site of the Midland Mall mm-hmm. you know, contractor, the Wilton Corporation. And then you see the mall being built. I, mean, I, I kind of view, viewed malls as kind of like a blight upon the land. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were kind of like a, they were kind of a blight upon the land. I thought, you know, they were ugly. So many of them, you know, from the outside. Look at the Beverly Center when it was new. It was like this big fucking, like some ugly graphite spaceship. You know, with no, no, you know, like ready to take off. You know, so. So yeah, so the Nostromo and Alien, because I'm a huge alien. I mean, I bow down before Ridley Scott's visual abilities and just the whole merging of sound and light and everything about that movie to me is so fucking brilliant. And um, so I looked at the mall as the Nostromo and, and we looked at all the back corridors and the ventilation shafts, you know, like Parker and Brett, you know, the mechanics, you know. So, um, so we gave Tony Caden, who had just written out of bounds for freeze and got set up at Columbia. And it was all that video meeting. We gave him our spec script to found more. And he said, you know what? There's a lot of great stuff in here. I think it can be better though. Still. He said, let me go to Chuck freeze. You know, they just sold my movie for 400,000. They paid me 45,000. Right. And, and, and Columbia is going to fund it. And freeze has just gotten an influx of capital from credit lean. A, I think it was, let me go to him and see if they'll, they're looking to do low budget movies. So he, so Tony Caden goes to, and Tony Caden, I think he's going to be interviewed on the Arrow um, DVD, the special features. He goes to Chuck and Chuck was an accountant to Columbia before he became a producer. So he was all about money and how much he can spend. Chuck said, but Chuck said, Phantom of the Opera meets Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I love it. Phantom of the Mall. <laughs> what a great idea. Next thing I know, I got my development deal. I just started writing two years earlier, right? I have a development deal at Freeze. They optioned it. They paid us guild scale plus 10 to do a polish, a rewrite actually, under Tony Caden's supervision. Tony had written like four produced TV movies and like eight or 10 episodes of TV. And, uh, you know, he was a good writer. He's still a dear friend of mine. And, um, and the script turned out great. So the script just getting better and better. It got better and better every step along the way from the Schneid Ulrich 30 page treatment called The Mall to the Schneid Michaelman spec screenplay based on that 30 page treatment to the Schneid Michaelman's Tony Caden supervised freeze entertainment version in development there with Tony as the director supervised. Tony did absolutely no writing on the script, not, not, not a word, but we would talk to him and if we were stuck, we would and he'd read whatever we wanted to give him and he'd comment and, it was fab. We were really excited. And I knew a guy named Randall Frakes, Randy Frakes, who did the novelization for Terminator. Randy and I wrote a script together. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. Called Maelstrom. And that's a whole nother story. Um, because my partner, Tony Michaelman, raised about $40,000 in 1988. We hired about six, seven people to write. We paid him like $7,000 a script with, a, with a, a full back end if the movie got made, you know. So we had a little cottage sweatshop going as producers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, Cottage Industry Sweatshop. So uh, Randy Frakes read Phantom Mall, the script that my, uh, what you read, which was the freeze draft. Loved it. Loved it. Gave it to Tom Gil- Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. They loved it. This was 1988. They wanted to do all the effects. They did 18 pages of storyboards, which 
you will see an arrow release. Um, actually, well, William Wilson, who was a Fangoria writer, did a column on my draft of Phantom of the Yeah, Mall. I've I seen can... some storyboards somewhere. Yeah, yeah. there was a there, great there one. There yeah. was a gr there's a great one of uh, of the dream sequence where he's trying to save his grandmother and he and he takes her head off. Yeah. He pulls oh, her head off and it starts shooting yeah. like fire out of the eyes. Oh, yeah, it's all in my script. All in my script. Oh, man. So this was a pain. I could, you know, I'm okay now. Years ago, <laughs> you know, I'm okay. But this was a very painful experience for me. I mean, I mean, I've had people tell me you know, how much they absolutely loved our draft of Phantom of the Mall, the Schneid, Michael, and Caden draft, supervised draft. Well, and I was just going to say for the audience, like what I like about yours is, because I do like the finished film, but it's not good. Like, I don't, it's not like I think you. it's a good This interview movie. is over. <laughs> I like hey, it. My mic. I like mic. it because it's bad. And I saw it at the right age with my friends and I were just no, watching. It's so good. It's so bad. It's good. No, but not the writer. But my but what I like about yours, though, is because so I, I was a mall rat at the mall where Kevin Smith shot mall uh, rats. So, you know, uh, I, I feel like I have mall in my DNA uh, yeah, and yours, you know, like you said, freeze is like it's fast times meets fan of the opera. I was going to say it's like mall rats, the horror movie. Like it yeah, feels yeah, it's about exactly. kids. It's the research, you guys. And it's kids hanging out at the mall. And, and, by and the, the way, one that got finished, I, 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 it's like they all kind of seem like they're in their 20s. She's dating like a adult reporter is like the love interest like nothing that's about it beginning. like josh yeah. that's just the beginning and the poly short the poly shore character is like a punk mall rat he doesn't Not, just work in my a, script he was the mall that's rat. what i'm saying i'm saying what i like mm -hmm. about he your didn't script. work in a fucking yogurt shop he was <laughs> the king rat he owned the mall in his mind in his mind the security people work for him right he, in, in my in my version tony michaelman's version of the script Paulie Shore was like from some divorced home, broken home, who lived in the freaking mall. He thought the mall belonged to the teenagers, and he was the king rat. And there were many more teenage characters in my script than there yeah. were. Yeah, a whole King's, group. A whole yeah. group of them in Robert King's. Uh, and um, Paulie, Paulie Shore, um, Buzz was his name, and they kept the name Buzz in Robert King's version. Buzz was the king rat. And there was a great sequence halfway in the movie on 4th of July where he sneaks all the town's kids into the mall in the sewer underneath the mall. So you establish that. You don't realize that. Great foreshadowing for the finale. That's how the kids, Amy and all the kids escape. Okay? Because the Phantom in my draft, in Tony's draft, Michaelman's draft, um, locks all the investors at the party for, to come from all around the country to, to meet with Karen Wilton who was not the mayor of the town. She ran the Wilton Corporation and she built malls. That was what she did. And you know, the conspiracy was much bigger in our draft. It involved Karen Wilton, it involved the police chief and the mayor who were both men and, and Karen Wilton, a, a, a trio of conspirators. And um, so yes, there were so many things about it that would I change. I like the Phantoms like trying to get them to close the mall. Like minor yeah. detail, but I liked things like that. The and Phantom, he's yeah, more sorry. monstrous. Um, Much more monstrous. He did talk like, look what you did to me. Look what you did to me. When he says to Jonathan Goldsmith in the finished version, he, no, he didn't talk like, he didn't talk at all, basically. He, 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 I was going to say, there's this, there's this one scene in the script that like really hit home. It's like, 
It's like you did a montage scene, you know, of him dressing to like ZZ sharp dressed man. That sequence is really great because like he's, you know, he's in the store in the mall. He's putting on like Night, there's nobody there. Right. Yeah. And then there's like just a sad ending to it after the montage, after he's getting all dressed up, then he Remember catches himself in the mirror. Was. Yes. And, yeah, and the, a three sided mirror. So it's like it was like it was like Tom Cruise in Dirty Risky Business. We get because we said the Phantom is alone at night. He's got all the material things in the world. Right. They can't go out in the world anymore. So he's trying on all these clothes, right? In the mirror, in a montage to Sharp Dressed Man. And then ultimately he stops, right? The music stops, he stops, right, Steve? Yes. And then he looks at himself in a three-sided mirror. And he just, his whole visage changes, right? And he's punching the fucking mirror and you cut. Because he realizes he can never be what he, he can never be in society anymore. But he wasn't, but in that script, you know, he... There was still a real bond between him and Amy. Amy, it's yeah, much- that was the other thing I was gonna say. Yeah. Like it, it, it does evoke the actual Phantom of the Opera, which has like a romance element. Because in the in Eric's Revenge, the finished film, it's like they show all the stuff about how they were in love, but then when she finds out he's alive, it like she goes, she's I, she like, goes to rock, she goes to the porter. Fuck the Phantom. I I got you. Yeah, that was uh, not okay, guys. Listen, it's, it's there is nothing mine. There is nothing of mine left in the script. I'm not even talking about no dialogue left in mine. There was no cobra biting a guy's dick in the toilet. There was no <laughs> eyeballs in the yogurt. Fucking, like I said, Buzz didn't work in the yogurt shop. You know, Buzz, like on July 4th, sneaks all the kids into the mall under the sewer system from the old neighborhood that they built them all on top of. And he has a huge party up at the roof of the mall at night with fireworks from the town, like from two miles away in the background, while they're all getting shit-faced, all the kids, and Buzz jumps on the table and gives a speech about how we've taken them all back. You know, it's our mall, you know? It's like, you know, from the, you know, it's back to where it belongs, you know? It was great. And he had a big, he had like all kinds of food up on the roof. It was yeah. like, he was a scammer schemer, you know? Well, the ending is so much better where they, getting like a fight with Morgan Fairchild's with the part that she ended up playing the movie, but. Yeah, so in the Arrow video interview that they did for the collector's version coming out, I actually read the finale on Oh, really? Oh, wow. So choked up. All right, well, we don't go into too much detail because we want people to buy that Blu-ray. Great storyboard of it too. Yeah, you're right, Steve. The storyboard was awesome. Mm. I mean, fucking, can you imagine Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff Jr. doing all the Amazing. And, and, and it was a much deeper conspiracy. The story unfolded completely differently. In the beginning, Amy's hearing voices like in the, so the, the opening of the mall is not inside, it was outside in the parking lot. And there were like some sewer grates and she would hear, Amy, Amy. She's looking around and she says, nobody there. And you don't know if this girl's crazy. And she had a mother and a little baby a brother. brother. Oh, there's a great scene where though, because the other thing I was going to say, like, again, the character that for some reason they made an adult reporter in Eric's Revenge. He was no fucking reporter. But in your your script, he works at a pet store and there's this great scene where all the dogs are. I'm sorry, I got to talk over you. I'm from Brooklyn. (laughs) It was Carl, Carl, the Phantom's best friend, Peter Lincoln, who worked in the toy store in the mall. And Amy knew him really well because he was Carl's best friend. By the way, Carl was a senior in high school. Like I mean, was going to go to Juilliard. He had auditioned with the Liz Concerto, right? Yeah. When he got into Juilliard. 
So Peter Lincoln is working in the toy store. Peter, Phantom's best friend is working. And, and there's a scene where Amy gets her little brother, he's like five, or she's a puppy from the toy store for his birthday. The puppy gets away and gets through the back door of the toy store, goes into the back corridors of the, of the mall behind all the stores, which are, you know, they're lit, but they're not, not like being out in the mall, right? And all of a sudden you follow the puppy and the mother says, and Amy says, the mother says um, to, the, to the brother, says, I forget the brother's name, Billy. Billy, get the puppy. What are you doing, Billy? Go get the puppy. Because she thinks it's safe. You know, she's gonna mm-hmm. go. And you follow, you follow the puppy just walking down the back corner of the wall. And all of a sudden, <laughs> the puppy stops at red high tops because the phantom was wearing red high tops. And then you see, and then the, the, you see Billy. Oh, I'm sorry, so the puppy stops at red high tops and like gnarled, gross monster fingers, hands pick the puppy up. And you see, it's almost like the alien looking at the cat at the end of, of, of the end of uh, alien. Yeah. Where the cat's in the little cat box, and you see from the cat's point of, you see from behind the cat box, the alien's huge head is right by the box. Like, so the puppy you know, stops, and then the phantom picks the puppy up, and then all of a sudden you see Billy, the little brother's there, and then the phantom sort of smiles. So he can't really smile, but you see his face soften, and he goes, "Here, Billy," and he gives him the thing. And then Billy looks at the Phantom and runs back down the corridor <laughs> into the toy store. His mother and it was Amy in my script. It wasn't Melody. Robert King changed three quarters of the names, um, you know, um, just to stick the knife in a little bit more. Um, so, you know, he runs back in and, and the little boy goes, mommy, mommy, there's a monster back there. He slimed on the puppy. And she goes, I not believe him. She goes, honey, come on, let's go home. We got to make dinner, you know, whatever it was. But yeah, so there was all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the movie, the f- in the in the Robert King version, again, it, there's nothing left of our script. And not just dialogue. It's all the characters and the relationships and the emotions. Amy, in our script, the, the movie was unfolding on multiple levels from the beginning. Amy seems off. Is there something wrong with her? Is she crazy? The kids are talking about, yeah, she had, you know, she was in the fire or whatever. You don't really know what happened. It's, it's, all, it's all layered in there. You know, the subplots are laid and they're advanced as the script, as the pages turn. And Amy's having nightmares and you go, oh my God, she was in a fire. So she's flashing back to what really happened, but then she's also having nightmare versions of what happened, like the heads turning around, fire shooting out of the eyes. So as, as the movie progresses, it's operating on these multiple levels and you're you're wanting to see what happened, what really is this the real story here. So it makes you want to keep watching as you're, it's, it's unfolding, right? And then of course the conspiracy was much deeper. And if, if you hired an arsonist to burn down a mall <laughs> and the girl who escaped the fire and, you know, from the fan, Carl's house, Carl lived with his grandmother and Carl and the grandmother died. At least you think Carl died, but no, he survived, he's the phantom. Are you gonna and Amy, Amy thought she saw someone. She escaped the house and she she hit her head and she was knocked sort of unconscious before the police and the fire people came. She looked up and she saw this guy with a certain earring on his ear. She told the police that two, three years ago. They said, Amy, you must have just been imagining there was nobody there. Of course, you don't know that the police chief of the small town's in on the conspiracy, right? The police chief knows the arsonist was there with the earring. So, but you know. She's working in the mall. The arsonist is working as a fucking security guard in the mall. 
what? Would you hire the arsonist to work as a security guard in the mall wearing the same <laughs> earring that he was wearing that Amy saw the night of the fire that the police chief and the could say, no, 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 no. And there he right is, there he is. <laughs> it was insane. It was ridiculous. And the, the Phantom didn't do Kung Fu in my script. And there was nothing like that. There was nothing like that. He, 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 was, he was basically a, a, a monster, you know? And he loved Amy. And Amy missed and loved him. And Amy did not go into business with a local reporter, some slick looking local reporter to do, to uncover the mystery. She and Peter, who worked in the pet store, who was the Phantom's best friend, come together to uncover the mystery. They pushed the story forward. She was the victim. Her boyfriend died. She was actually scarred a little bit in the fire in her midsection and is suffering post-traumatic stress, you know? And, and she's hearing the voices and the Phantom Leaves Flowers for which Robert King left in, but it was very different in our script. So she comes to realize that Carl's alive. Could he possibly be alive? And she does the research and the title of the house. And, and at the end of the movie, there's a, there's a mono a mono fight in the mall atrium, atrium between Morgan Fairchild's character and our script, who was the, was the Wilton Corporation owner, and Amy while the mall is burning all yeah, around them, like, like the towering fucking inferno movie, right? People, investors, future mall investors, God knows how many people they're going to kill to build malls in their town. Right? <laughs> but like on fire, like slamming through windows of stores and, 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 and um, the, um, the security guys, the, the security guys, the ex crazed ex Vietnam vet goes up because, because the phantom is piping in the list concerto and all the PA systems. So that's what he played to get into Juilliard, right? In his audition, he's piping it in and, and he's got liquid propane running through all the ventilation chests, not a bomb. He's gonna burn them all like they burned him and his grandmother. It wasn't a bomb. It was liquid propane that he was running through all the ventilation chests. And um, yeah, and it's Amy versus Wilton, mano a mano in that space of the giant atrium in the mall while Cops are dead and people are on fire. And it was a $4.2 million movie in 1988. And, and ultimately, and Wilton comments, you know, she says, you know, they, you don't understand Amy. They need us. We tell them what to wear, what to eat, how to live, <laughs> right? It's like insane glint in her eye, right? As it's all going to shit around her, you know? <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, she knocks Amy out and she's about to shoot her with one of dead cops' gun. She didn't carry a little gun in her fucking purse. You know, like <laughs> Fairchild, the mayor pulls a gun out of her purse. I can go on and on and on. We're going to hit pause right here and pick things back up in episode two of our two-part conversation with Scott Schneid. Thank you to Scott for joining us and thank you to you for listening. If you'd like more content from us, you should follow us on Twitter at Never Made Film and Instagram at Best Movies Never Made. You should also download the Electric Now app so you can watch a video of our podcast and all the podcasts on the Electric Surge network. We'd like to thank everyone here at Electric Surge, including Bill Ritter and our producers, Mark A. Altman and Dean Devlin. Until next time, this is Josh Miller and Steven Scarlatta saying we won't see you at the movies. Thank mm-hmm. you.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.